0: with 16 chapters, is divided into two big sections. The first half, which is Mark chapter 1 through 8, answers the question, who is Jesus? That's what we've been looking at all for these past weeks, all the way back to October when we started, Mark. This morning, as we near the end of, of chapter 8, we're crossing the seam between the two sections of this book. We're going to look at a time in the, in the Apostle Peter's life that was one of his best moments. Unfortunately, it was followed by one of his worst. As we see this, we're going to see that it's all too easy. It's all too easy for us to say, you are the Christ, to, to name Jesus as the Christ. It's all too easy then for us to follow in Peter's footsteps and mer- merely pay lip service to Jesus. We're going to see Peter get the the right answer to the question of who is Jesus? This question, as I said, that hung over the first part of the book. Then we're going to see Peter completely botch it up and get the wrong answer to the question that will dominate the second half of the book. Why did Jesus come? So let's look at the text before we study it. It starts in uh, verse 27 of chapter 8. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Another one of those times where where this this mystery comes about, where where Jesus tells folks who are healed or people who say something, don't, don't tell anybody. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now this passage in Mark's gospel, it's like a fulcrum or a pivot point of a lever. It's like the book balances on this story in this middle. And we're gonna break our study down today into into three different headings, broad headings. We're gonna look first at what did Peter get right? Then we're gonna look at what did Peter get wrong? And then I want us to look at what we can learn about Peter's mistakes so that we don't do the same thing. Because whether we realize it or not, we do the same thing. That Peter did. The first thing is that Peter got the person of Jesus right. And if you're following along, please pull out that half sheet of uh, paper. It says life notes at the top. The text begins by telling us Jesus and his disciples went on. They went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, last week we left Jesus and the and the twelve in the town of Bethsaida. And Bethsaida is here. I've got the map up there. It's on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. Three of Jesus' disciples, Peter, Andrew, and Philip, were from there. Uh, later, Peter, it, it seems, moved to, and Andrew moved to Capernaum, and that's where Jesus did a lot of his ministry out of there. It was a familiar place to Jesus, and the apostles, they, they visited there many times, and Jesus performed many, many miracles in Bethsaida. And he did so many miracles in Bethsaida, and received such a poor response from the people that in Luke 10 Verse 14, Jesus said it would be more bearable for the towns of Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for Bethsaida. Remember Tyre and Sidon? They're up here, over on, up there on the coast. They're those Gentile cities, those pagan cities that, that, that we talked about. You know, they're like the Las Vegas. Uh, sorry if you're from Las Vegas, but it's not called Sin City for no reason. They were like this Las Vegas of the, of the day. They were hardcore pagan cities on the coast. And we only know of one low-profile miracle that we looked at a few weeks ago that happened there. And that is when Jesus relieved the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman who came to him in faith and begged him, even though she was a Gentile, to go ahead and and heal her daughter. That's the only miracle that we know that happened up there. And we saw that, that Jesus marveled at her faith and he commended her this Gentile, this person that was one of the most unlikely people you would ever think that would come to Jesus. On the other hand, Bethsaida was a nice Jewish community. Jesus performed many miracles, as I said, in Bethsaida, but the people did nothing more than look at Jesus like he was an entertainer at the local county fair. And since the people of Bethsaida had so much evidence for the identity of Christ, with so little response to Jesus, he says that they would be judged more strictly on the day of judgment than these hardcore pagan cities. Now folks, this is a powerful reminder for for you and me, for each one of us, that, that the more we know about Christ, the more responsibility we have to live for Christ. We're responsible to, to respond, we're responsible to live the, in the light that God has given each one of us about the true identity of Christ. We're also responsible to seek him and to seek know him more and more, deeper and deeper as we grow in relationship with him, as we become more conformed to his character and his likeness in ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now Bethsaida was known for its fishing industry, and on the Sea of Galilee, this was a city where fishermen would bring their catch and their boats, and they sold the fish there on the docks, and it was salted and is exported throughout throughout that world. The name of the city reveals the centrality of this uh, as far as their business. Bethsaida literally means house of fish, and as I already said, three of Jesus' disciples, Philip, Simon, and Andrew, were originally from this town. Now, last week we saw Jesus heal a blind man in Bethsaida. He didn't perform that miracle publicly. We saw that Jesus entered the town and folks uh, brought the man to. His, uh, to Jesus, and so Jesus took the man off privately and addressed his needs in a private way with his disciples. It was kind of a unique uh, miracle because Jesus healed this man in stages. We, we pointed out that was the first time and the only time we see where Jesus heals in stages. And If you want to know why he healed this man in stages, I'm not going to go back over all that again today. You can go and catch the podcast online. At this point, Jesus left Bethsaida, and it says that he headed out of town, and he went 25 miles, almost due north, up towards Caesarea Philippi. Now, this was considered one of the last cities before you left Israel proper. Caesarea Philippi was near the ancient city of Dan, uh, there in the northern part of Israel. In Judges 20, verse 1, it, it describes the territory of Israel, and it says that it reached from Dan all the way in the north, down to Beersheba in the south. And by Jesus' time, this area wasn't all that Jewish. A lot more Gentiles than Jews lived in that area. And it was probably a good thing because Jesus had his reasons for going up there. As you recall over the last few weeks, he's been in and out of Gentile territory on the outskirts of, of, of Israel proper. And he's trying, to, he's trying to invest in the lives of his disciples. He's trying to teach them because he knows that, that the cross is coming. He knows that he's going to be leaving them, and it's going to be up to them to carry his teachings forth. And so he's kind of doing an intense tutoring period, an intense uh, teaching period with the disciples during this time. So he had his reason for heading there because if he was up there, he'd certainly probably get away from the, the religious folks that wanted to kill him. And he would also get away from the, uh, from the crowds that just wanted to make him a sideshow. It wasn't his time yet. His time would come. He knew it would come. And he's going to talk about that here a little bit today. But especially next week on Easter, we're going to look at that and what he had to say. So traveling to the semi-pagan city in the northern tip of Israel was a way for Jesus to get away with the disciples and for him to continue teaching them. Now, the city of Caesarea Philippi was originally called Paneas, P-A-N-A-E-A-S. It's a, it was a Greek city, and the Greeks named it after the Greek god Pan. And you may have seen pictures of Pan. I thought about throwing one up there, but I, I didn't. But he's kind of that, you know, half man, man from the waist up and like a, like a goat from the, from, the, from the waist down. And the Greek myth said that Pan was born in a cave outside of this city. And so people would come and they'd travel there to, to see the place where, where Pan was born. And by Jesus' time, the city was no longer called Panaeus, and its name was changed to Caesarea Philippi. Caesar, Augustus, had originally given this part of the world to Herod the Great, the king of Israel, to rule on behalf of Rome. You know, Herod was like a puppet king, and he was able to do this, but he also, he was the king of Israel, but he also was beholden to Caesar. And so his ter- when Herod the Great died, his territory was broken up into four portions. And his son Philip, the Tetrarch, Tetrarch meaning ruler of a, of a quarter, he became the ruler of this region, it was politically wise to go out of your way to please, and uh, you could read that, kiss up to, the Roman emperor and to show him your, your loyalty so that he didn't get rid of you and replace you with someone else because he could do that at his, own, at his whim. And so the, one of the ways that you did this was you changed a, the name of one of your principal cities to Caesarea. That was a good thing. Caesar was happy about it. And that's what Herod Philip did. Now, The problem is that a lot of folks did this. So you had a lot of these Caesareas around the ancient world. And so in order to distinguish between them, they had a second name. And this is Caesarea Philippi because it was named by Philip. Over on the coast, you have a Caesarea Maritima. You have other places like that there within the Roman world. As Jesus was walking with his disciples along the way up there, it says that he was talking to them. They had been together for about two and a half years and Jesus was about to turn south and head to Jerusalem where he would die on the cross. But before he headed to Jerusalem, he wanted to give his disciples kind of a a final exam. He wanted to ask them some questions to try and help them get it. Because as we've seen over the past few weeks, they weren't getting it. And it was only two questions. And the first question was the easier of the two. The first question was, who do people say that I am? And it says, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Who Jesus was is the big question that, as I've said, hangs over the first half of this gospel. All the way back, we've been trying to get that. Mark, though, told us the right answer very, in the very front of the gospel, the first part, the first chapter, the first verses, where, where he basically tells us that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Jewish Messiah, And in these earlier chapters, there's there's many times, multiple times, that demons recognize Jesus as the Christ. The only time we see someone that recognized him as Christ as or as a human being was that woman in Syrophoenicia, a Gentile, a woman who you never would have thought would have been one that recognized him as as a Jewish Messiah. But he's asking, what are people saying about me? And some they tell him, some said you're John the Baptist, back from the dead. We saw a few chapters back where John had been killed. He was, he was beheaded by a different Herod, not Herod Philip. And uh, we read about that back then because the guy was ticked off at John. And so he took him out of the prison and, and had him beheaded at his stepdaughter's uh, request. And when Herod Antipas heard about Jesus, he thought that maybe John's come back from the dead to haunt me. Some people thought that Jesus was Elijah. Remember Elijah in the Old Testament, major, major prophet in the Old Testament. And in Malachi chapters 3 and chapter four. Malachi tells us that the prophet Elijah will return just prior to the Messiah's arrival to prepare the way for his coming. Now one of the cool things about Elijah, the last place we see Elijah back in the Old Testament, is whenever he's walking along and God basically takes him up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Elijah didn't die. There's only one other guy, Enoch, that in the Old Testament tells us that something like that happened that we know of. And so Elijah goes up in the chariot of fire, and and Malachi and these other folks, they thought that Elijah was going to come back before Messiah's return. And as we get further into the Gospel of Mark and the next chapter in chapter 9, we're going to see that Jesus actually says that John the Baptist was Elijah returned. He He was a representative like Elijah. I mean he was the same guy, but he says that was the Elijah that they were talking about. Then they tell him, him, well, other people just think that you're a prophet. Well, after Jesus asked them what other people said about him, he asked them the million-dollar question. He says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, he said, you are the Christ. Now, incidentally, folks, this this question wasn't just important 2,000 years ago. This is the most important question that you or I or anyone we know will ever answer. Who do we say that Jesus is? Do we say he was just a man, a good teacher? Do we say that he was a myth and there's a lot of good stories that came up around him? Or is he the Messiah? So he says, who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now the Greek in this question is very interesting. The word you, there's a construction in Greek where it's like a double emphatic. It's like, it's like he's in their face, poking them in the chest. Who do you think that I am? Now, you may say, well, that doesn't sound very Jesus-like, but I'm just telling you the way it's worded there. You can picture Jesus there asking this question. And, and lots of people, as I said, have different answers for, the, for this. The Muslims will say that, that Jesus was a prophet, second only to their prophet Muhammad. They don't believe that he died and rose from the dead, though. They claim that that he's a prophet. Jehovah Witnesses will say that that Jesus was the first created being, but they don't believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. And as I said, other people just think that Jesus were were a a myth or that he was just a good man, a good moral teacher who who, who we we can follow his teachings. So, how did Peter answer this most important question in the world? He confessed Jesus unequivocally at this point as the Christ. He said Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. The one that the, that the scriptures had said would come, would be sent by God to, to save his people. The one that would bring the fulfillment to the world. In the Old Testament, this person was called the Messiah. The word in Greek is Christos. Christ, Messiah, they're the same thing. They're, they're titles. Jesus' last name wasn't Christ. It's a title, Christ is. And so Greek we get from the Greek Christos, we get Christ. In, uh, in Hebrew, it's Mashiach, which means m- Messiah. Same word, the anointed one, different, different languages. Now this is a huge, huge, huge conclusion on, on Peter's part. You know, how, how much bigger statement in a Jewish context in first century Palestine could you make than to say that this guy standing in front of him, this teacher that he'd followed for two and a half years, was the long-awaited Messiah? We learned last week that Peter didn't actually come to this massive conclusion on his own, the same way that none of us ever come to Christ on our own. Christian doctrine teaches the Holy Spirit draws us to Jesus, and, and there was a supernatural work in Peter's case. Jesus says to Peter in uh, Matthew 16, 17, he says, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So so Jesus was saying, the Father revealed this to you. So don't, don't get too proud here, Peter, but I'm sure Peter was he was, was there. He's at a high point in his life. He's probably, he's probably thinking, wow, I aced the final. Jesus has committed me for this. And so Peter's probably you know, patting himself on the back, and things couldn't get any better for Peter. He was the first one to recognize and to state explicitly that, that Jesus was the Messiah. Then things began heading in a different direction. For it tells us in verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. There's a very strange twist. Why would Jesus tell Peter and the other apostles to kind of be quiet about his identity? If I were Peter, I'd probably be taking a selfie with me and Jesus, posting it on my Facebook, on my Instagram, saying, hey, look, I I got the answer right. But Peter and the other disciples, Jesus says, be quiet. Don't post anything on Facebook. Don't put anything on your Instagram. Because Jesus knew that their idea of his work, their idea of what it meant for him to be the Messiah was different from the, the Father's idea was. So Peter got the person of Christ, but we're going to see here in a minute that he, he was way off base when it came to the plan of Christ. So how did Peter go from his best moment to his worst? What was it that Peter got wrong? Peter got the plan of Jesus wrong. For it goes on in verse 31, It says, he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, this is the first time, and it's it's emphasized there. It says Jesus plainly. Circle that word plainly on your life notes where I've got the scripture put. He spoke plainly to them. He was very clear to them that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer, and he was going to die. So, so, So circle that word must and circle plainly there. Jesus must suffer. This was not optional. This was not just possible. This had to happen. Jesus had to be rejected. Jesus had to die. And in the next two chapters, Jesus is going to again and again plainly tell his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. But each time that he did this, the disciples would fail to understand what he means, even though he was speaking to them plainly. Now notice here that Jesus identified himself as the Son of Man. And this is not the first time we've seen this in Mark's gospel. We saw it back in in chapter 2. If you remember the story, when I told the story about how the the, the paralytic was brought to the house and they dug a hole in the roof and lowered the man there, paralyzed Pat, we called him, in Capernaum. Son of man means more than just a a human being. Jesus was identifying himself with the son of man as described in Daniel chapter 7. Let's look at Daniel chapter 7 here for a second. Daniel writes, In my vision at night, I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's referring to God the Father, and was led into his presence. He, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is is one that will never be destroyed. Now, folks, worldly kingdoms come and go. They come and go. You look at Egypt, Greece, Rome, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. More recent, you know, one time they said the sun never sets on the British Empire. But look, look now, it's, it's been broken up and stuff. World powers come and go. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Son of Man is going to go on forever. Now, when Jesus said he was the Son of Man, he was identifying himself as the one who would set up that everlasting kingdom. And in the beginning of Mark, what did he do? He came teaching, and he said, behold, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. In the end, he will rule over all people. He, will, he, will, he is the Christ, and he will save people, and he will wrap up history in himself. Now, that part doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for the, when, you, when you're considering a suffering Messiah. The Jews didn't understand that. Peter didn't understand that. They didn't understand, what do you mean? You see this and how can that person suffer? How can they die? It just wouldn't compute. It was just uh, an oxymoron in in Peter's head. And so Peter had a hard time reconciling this with his conception of Messiah and and Jews to this day have that problem. That's why they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah except for completed or, or Jews that have believed in Christ. Sometimes I'll say something to my dog. I'll say Barnabas and Barnabas looks at me, this head cocked, like you kind of wonder what's going through his head. And I think that's kind of what Peter was doing here, kind of like, What? Like, this doesn't make sense. I just said you're the Messiah. The great person's going to be over. And you're going to tell me you're going to suffer? You're going to die? You know, that's what Peter's background had taught him. His background had taught him that Messiah would bring a military, a worldly kingdom. He'd kick Roman butt, get him out of the way, and and then Israel would reign the world. Uh, But Jesus, Jesus would be someone that suffered, that someone would die. The idea that Jesus would do this would be incomprehensible to a Jew, in Jesus' day. In Matthew 20, we see another example of this where, where the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder, two of Jesus' um, uh, disciples, uh, two more fishermen that were from Capernaum, the mother came to Jesus and said, hey, master, can my boys, can they sit at your right and at your left in your kingdom? You know, even the mother of James and John, she had this concept of, of this earthly kingdom, that, this worldly kingdom that Jesus would be setting up. Instead, Jesus used his power he used his power to calm a storm to protect his, his disciples. And he didn't use it to basically obliterate the Roman nation, the Roman Empire. Now, while Peter had things right in that he understood the identity of the person of Christ, as I said, he did not understand the plan of Christ. And what happens next here is amazing. Peter had just confessed, you're it. You're the Messiah. You're this person that's going to have this, this, this worldwide kingdom. But then he heard, you're going to suffer? You're going to die? And Peter just couldn't stand that. He pulled Jesus aside, and he rebuked him. Now, this is a very, very strong word in the original text there. He rebuked him. He didn't say, hey, Jesus, I think this is that. No, no, he got in Jesus' face. He said, that ain't the way it's going to be, Jesus. No, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand. It was like, Peter, who do you, what what'd you just say? Who do you think you're talking to? Have you gone nuts? you lost your marbles? How can you have the audacity to to address Jesus that way in light of what you just said? Do you forget who you're talking to? And then we see Jesus's response. It says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he looked at all of them there. He rebuked Peter. Same word that was used a minute ago. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So Jesus let Peter have it, you might say. And this is the same word of rebuke as I, as I mentioned. Jesus basically saying, who do you think you are? You, are, you just said I'm the Messiah. Don't, don't claim that I am the chosen one, the one to wrap up all history and then have the gall to start lecturing me at how to run history. Get the behind me, Satan. And this rebuke had to sting Peter. Peter had gone from feeling very proud of himself to feeling pretty small after Jesus kind of cutting down to size there. And, and it's an appropriate rebuke because Peter was doing the same thing that, that Satan had did in his, one of his temptations to Jesus. He was, he was saying, basically, you need, to, you need to take kingship over the world without going through the process that the Father has laid out. And that was extremely important to Jesus. I encourage you this, this coming week to, to start at John chapter, say, 12 or 13 and read through those that last night in the upper room all the way through Jesus in the garden and, through there, and see how Jesus was agonizing over this. But yet he, his chief thing, his, his prime directive, if you will, for you Star Trek fans, was to follow the will of the Father. Follow the will of the Father. Do what the Father laid out. Do what the Father sent you to do. Now, I'm going to admit up front to you here, okay? I'm going to go from preaching here, teaching here for a minute. I'm going to meddle, okay? I'm going to meddle here for a few minutes. Don't say I didn't warn you up front. Over this past week, I've been meddling in my own life as I've I've gone over these things that I'm getting ready to share with you. Because what I want to do is I, I want to look at, you know, we may, it's easy for us to sit here and judge Peter, but don't we all do the same thing? And if you don't, hopefully you'll change your mind over the next few minutes. Because how many times are we like Peter, recognizing Jesus as the Christ, but unwilling to submit to the plan of Jesus? We call Jesus the Christ, but at times we think that we have a better plan for running our lives, for, for running the world, than what Jesus does. We claim Jesus is the Christ, and then we start telling him the way that things, the way that things should be. Have you ever done that in your prayer life? I have. We think we know better how to run our lives than he does. So let's look at how easy it is for us to be a, a Peter. The first one, the first example I have for you, and this, there, there's many examples I could, I could give you. I originally had eight of them, but I pared it down to, down to five because I thought somebody might start walking out or something. If it went too long, more than over an hour and a half. Um, this is what Peter got upset about in the first place. We think that suffering is not a normal part of the Christian life. We think that suffering is not a normal part of the Christian life. This is what got Peter upset in the first place. As soon as Jesus started talking about suffering, Peter said, whoa, 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 Jesus, uh, you no, know, wait a minute, you, you got something in your ears, you don't understand. Peter thought that following Jesus would be easy. He thought that, that following Jesus would lead to the overthrow of the Romans. And how many of us have thought that way? You know, there's, there's entire denominations and groups within, within Christianity that, that they believe in Jesus and they believe the same Jesus that, that of the Bible and all, but then they teach that life's supposed to be easy. You're not going to have any suffering. You're not going to have anything, no, no problems. Uh, it's going to be, you know, just a piece of cake once you accept the Lord, or once you faith Jesus. And and it's true in the eternal scheme of things, it is. But the groups I'm thinking of, they actually teach on this earth, you'll never have any problems. You'll never, you know, it's just going to be be easy. But we think the same way sometimes. We call him Christ, but when suffering comes into our lives, we want to sit Jesus down and tell him the plan is wrong, that we shouldn't have to do this. I mean, we're, we're his after all. The Bible, though, says that suffering is part of God's plan for the life of the Christian. We will suffer as Christians. And it, it's a normal part of God's plan. And sometimes, sometimes, we'll never know why. We'll never know why. The Bible has an entire book Talking about this, the Book of Job. It's a long book, but it's very worth worthwhile reading through it. I I love studying Job and and looking at it. And Job was a guy that the that the Bible that God held up. God actually held him up to Satan as an example. He said, "Hey, this is my servant Job. Have you considered him? Look at him. He's upright. He loves me." And Satan challenged God and said, "Yeah, but it's only because you give him everything, God." And so God said, "Okay, you can touch him." And so he loses his family, his kids, his flocks, his fields, his workers, and all this stuff. And Job still praises the Lord. And Satan comes back and says, yeah, but let me afflict him personally. And God goes, okay, you can afflict him personally. You just can't take his life. And Job ends up sitting on an ash heap. That's like a garbage dump. And he's he's so infested with boils and stuff on his skin that he has to take a a, a piece of pot. And he's scraping. He's scratching himself to, to relieve some of the pain. And his wife is sitting there saying, silly man, just curse God and die. So Job went, he, he went all the way to the pit there, basically. Then he's got some friends that come along. And his friends come along, first of all, the first three, and they, they have all the answers. You know, you have any friends like that? Any church friends like that? They've got all the answers. This is why you're suffering. Or this is why, you know, they, they want to tell him all these things. And, and then, uh, then another guy shows up. And, and all, through all throughout all this, and then God shows up. And God challenges Job. And he basically says, where were you? And he goes through all this, all these things, speaking of creation and about the, the mysteries of creation, the animals and such. Where were you? And you know what? Job's pretty, you know, he's a little bit smart there. He doesn't have an answer. He can't answer that, you know. He can't stand up to God. And in the end, though, God restores to Job. He gives him, he gives him some flocks back. He gives him more children. But the thing is, he uh, gives daughters, and, 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 and uh, actually Job's daughters are, 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 are praised in the end of the book there. But God never tells Job, "Oh, by the way, buddy, here's why all this happened." I was trying to I was trying to show Satan how loyal you were to me. We never find out that Job, that Job know, knows why he was suffering. And so, you know, when you get feeling sorry for yourself or you shouldn't have to be going through something, go back and read read about Job and consider that you're not sitting on the garbage dump someplace scraping your sores. I'm not going to I'm not trying to belittle your suffering. Suffering is suffering. Suffering's hard. Suffering hurts. But just keep it within the scheme of things, within the grand scheme of things. We must remember that Jesus told us to expect suffering. And if we claim Jesus is our Christ, we have no right to sit him down and tell him that it's wrong if we have to endure suffering or persecution. Peter did later get this, okay? Last year, we, last season, those of you that were here, we spent the entire time studying the book of 1 Peter. And if you missed that, that's on, that's on the podcast online as well. And it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, then that letter he wrote, he said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. So Peter got it. He he realized, hey, this church is going to be persecuted. The church is going to suffer. And Paul also understood this when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He said, in fact, everyone. Now, who does everyone exclude? Everyone excludes no one. Paul says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, if you're being persecuted, what does that tell you? Well, you're either doing it because you're a fool, in which case sometimes we get persecuted because we're foolish, or it's because you're, you're, you're living a godly life. Now, if you're not being persecuted at all, then that may cause some pause. Either I'm just the most put-together person on, on the planet, so everybody loves me, Am I doing things? Am I living a godly life where I'm not being persecuted? Am I going with the flow of the world? So we must not do the Peter. Let us not name the name of Jesus as Christ. Then when we suffer, try to tell Jesus that he has the wrong plan for our life. Secondly, the second way we do this is we think that forgiveness is optional. We think forgiveness is optional, not a requirement. Did you know that Jesus said, The way I forgive others... Is the way that Jesus will forgive me? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't totally understand this. I've read this, this scripture thousands of times. And I'll tell you, I don't understand it, but, and I definitely don't like it, okay? I don't like the scripture. I'll, I'll submit to you. I'm honest. But it doesn't change the fact that he said it. Just because I don't like something that's in God's word doesn't mean that it's not right or that he didn't say it. In Matthew chapter 6, it says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now I've preached sermons here on forgiveness and, and on this passage. And it's hard to, to, to unpack that and try to understand all that. Because as believers, we are forgiven. But there's things that happen when we, when we hold bitterness or we hold unforgiveness in our hearts. There's things that limit God's working in our lives because of this root of bitterness or this, this root of unforgiveness that we have and, and comes between us and other people, especially other believers. Jesus' prayer, you've heard me say before, what was chief on Jesus' mind there in the garden when he was praying for the church there in John chapter 17? He said, Father, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. Jesus' prayer for, for his, his folks, his, his people on earth, would be that they would be one that there would be unity the same way, the same kind of unity that there was between God the Father and God the Son. And folks, we, we still have a long way to go to get there, don't we? Amen? There's no exceptions on this. We've all been completely forgiven by Jesus, and we, we must be completely forgiving of others. Jesus gives no exceptions. There's no, there's no but-ifs in this. Those who are completely forgiven must be completely forgiving. And it's easy to call on the name of Jesus and forgive most people, it's easy to forgive that person that cut you off in the traffic that you've forgotten about on the, over on the 60. But there's some things, there's some deep wounds that, we, that we've received. Maybe in our childhood or even in adulthood, there's some deep wounds that hurt us and we, we haven't forgiven them. We need to do so because otherwise it's going to affect us in our relationship with God. and It's going to affect us in our relationship with other people. We tell Jesus that we'll forgive everyone except that person, that they're too evil, they hurt me too deeply. And that's being just like Peter. And before we go too far and misunderstand this, I do know and I want you to understand that that, that forgiveness does not mean removal of all consequences. Okay? Forgiveness does not mean removal of all consequences. There's people who have done some pretty heinous things and they're sitting in prison. They may be listening to me on this podcast. And you may be forgiven by God, but there's still going to be consequences. You still may be incarcerated for a time being. You may still have to pay your debts to society, so to say. Now, does that mean that you, you just turn a blind eye to God? No. You still follow God and you be the best forgiven inmate or convict that you, that you can be. Now, in our life outside the prison, forgiveness doesn't mean that you necessarily have to invite that person to your house for Thanksgiving dinner, give them the knife, and then turn your back on them and tell them to carve the turkey. <laughs> that might be foolish, depending on who it is. Forgiving someone also doesn't mean that that person now needs to become your best friend. However, they could be. They could become your best friend. Forgiveness means basically that you turn it over to God. You give it to God. You let God have it. You let him take care of it. You're no longer looking for opportunities for revenge. You're you're no longer looking for places to, to tear that person down or to hurt them. You let God deal with it. You don't let it dominate your thought life. And when we don't forgive, when we keep rehashing the person and the situation over and over again, we turn that poison that was given us into poison inside of us. And some of the, some of the most hurting people that I've known as of counsel folks over the year are people that, that haven't forgiven someone else. And they're bitter, bitter people. And it doesn't just affect that relationship there. It affects other relationships. God says, vengeance is mine. Let me take care of it. And God may decide to take care of things by dealing with that person. He may also decide to take care of things by bringing that person to repentance. But that's not your call. It's not my call. That's God's call. Now to talk about it, I know that some of you may have a person coming to your mind and you're still angry with them. Don't be a Peter. Give it to God. Give it to God this morning. Don't claim Jesus is the Christ. Then refuse to follow God's plan for your life and be unforgiving. The third one here. We think God is pleased with giving him a bit of what we have left instead of the first fruits of all we receive. Jesus talked more about money and property and possessions than he talked about heaven and hell combined. He said that the way that we handle our money and our material possessions reveals more about the true maturity of our hearts than anything else. He said that what we do with our money is a true reflection of our hearts and our priorities. So why do we give our money to God? Why do we give up our possessions to him? Well, giving of our, our wealth is an act of worship and gratitude. It expresses gratitude to him. The Bible teaches us that God always deserves what is first and what is best from us. And that's why we're to give him of our first fruits. That's, a, that's, a, that's an old term that you might have heard before. But it's given, you think about him first. You don't wait and say, oh, wait a minute. Here, let me give, some, let me give the leftovers to God. But unfortunately, that's the way that a, a lot of people do it. A long time ago, Christians used the word tithe, and it's still somewhat in use. And unfortunately, even within those churches that, that stress the tithe, here's what I found. A lot of folks become just like the Pharisees. I've seen people that might have made $120.76, and they'll give $12. And seven, do, I, do I round it up to 71 cents or down to? People are legalistic about the tithe. And Jesus saved his harshest words for the Pharisees. And I have subscribed to the belief that God is just as concerned with what you do with the other 90% as he is with the 10%. I believe in New Testament giving. New Testament giving says this in 2 Corinthians 9. It tells us that we are to give generously. It's why I try to live my life in a very generous way. That's one of the hallmarks. I strive very much to be like my Heavenly Father and to be generous. He wants us to give proportionally he wants us to give sacrificially. And for some people, a tithe isn't a sacrifice, okay? And he wants us to give joyfully. The exact translation of that Greek word that's used there in 2 Corinthians is hilariously. Hilariously. You know, when was the last time you gave hilariously? Well, God, that's how God wants his followers under the new covenant to give. In some cases, it may be more than a tithe. The average Christian and the average church in America, you know what they give? 2%. They don't give a tithe, they give a tooth, okay? (laughs) They give a tooth. The key to remember is that God is concerned, he's concerned that we give to him what is first and what's best, not the leftovers. But think about it, and you you can write those down proportionally, sacrificially, joyfully. Jesus gave the example of the, the, the widow that gave the mite. That may have been way more than 10%. Or may not have been. I don't know. But Jesus commended her. And, and Jesus pointed that out to the people that are sitting there thumping their chest about we give a tithe of what we have. You know, remember when Jesus had the, uh, the Pharisees in. He said, oh, you're great. You, you, give, you even tithe on your spices. You know, how many here tithe on the spices that come into your life? I don't know. Anyway, just saying. You need, you need to look at this and not be legalistic about it. But give in these ways that the New Testament teaches. And I believe that, particularly for people in America, North America, that are as well off as we are, I believe that's way more than 10%. That's just that's just my feeling, because I can't outgive God. There's no way I can outgive Him. And anything I have, anything I quote own, I'm just I'm just using it for His glory. Give first. Don't give the leftovers. Don't be a Peter in these areas. Don't claim that Jesus is the Christ. And when it comes to your finances, tell Jesus that we don't like His plan. That it doesn't work that way. Now, you thought I was meddling already? I'm going to really meddle here, okay, folks? Because this goes so counter, what I'm getting ready to say, it goes so counter to our culture, but you know what? It's not me saying. It's what God's Word says. We think sex outside of marriage is innocent fun, that it's not sinful and destructive. I'll tell you, folks, sex is a gift from God. Now, unfortunately, in the church and certain denominations teach that, will teach that sex is only for procreation. That's not what the Bible teaches Go read Song of Songs. Sex is a gift from God for marriage. Sex is a gift from God for marriage. It bonds people together. There's a spiritual union that happens in sex. It adds excitement to life. But outside of marriage, sex will destroy you. There are plenty of people today who call Jesus the Christ, but they don't think that Jesus knows what he's talking about. They claim that there's nothing wrong with, with living together and try it before you buy it, that kind of thing, or sleeping together before marriage. They claim that, well, we will get married in the future. and They say, well, we live in a modern era. They say, well, we want to make sure that we're sexually compatible before we get married. Or Jesus needs to modernize his views on sexuality and loosen up a little bit. After all, everybody else is doing it. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, "says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And as I said, Paul goes on, and he talks about there, how there's a spiritual communion, there's a spiritual union that happens in the act of sex that should only happen between a man and a woman in the committed relationship of marriage. And again, we say that we don't like what it says, but that doesn't change the fact that God said it. God promises us that premarital sex, extramarital sex is not just sin. It will hurt you. It'll hurt your relationship. It'll hurt your relationship with God. It'll hurt your relationship with your spouse. Living together without lifelong commitment will hurt you. It may feel good, but over time, God says it won't be good for you. However, sex inside of marriage is a gift from God designed to bring a husband and wife together to help your relationship both with each other as well as with Him. Whereas sex outside the covenant of marriage will damage your relationship. It's, it, sex is a good thing. Like I said, some of these denominational, they said you know, sex is only for procreation. No, sex is a good thing. In 1 Corinthians 7, married couples are commanded. Did you get that word? Married couples are commanded to not abstain from sexual activity with one another except for a mutually agreed time of concentrated prayer. If you don't believe it, go back and read 1 Corinthians 7. God wants couples in a marriage relationship to enjoy sex. We need to reclaim this biblical view of this gift of God rather than believe the stuff that we're fed from Hollywood and, and from culture. God promises judgment for those who choose intimacy outside of the marriage bed. And Hebrews 13:4 says, marriage should be honored by all. We should all honor marriage. Both those of us that, that are married, those of us that were married, those of us that want to be married, we should honor marriage. And it says, God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And some of you folks may think, well, it's not going to hurt if we just decide to live together, but, but folks, it does. It does hurt. There's research that shows that couples that cohabitate ahead of marriage are much more likely to end up in divorce than those that don't. And uh, again, it's, it's, it's not me making that up. That's just, the, that's just the research, what the research shows. How many of us are like, like Peter on this one? We claim Jesus is the Christ, but we tell Jesus that he doesn't understand modern sexual mores and and, and relationships. We think, well, we know better than God. It doesn't work that way, Jesus. Finally, and this one will be very brief, we think a successful child is more important than a godly child. And you can put grandchild in there too. We think successful grandchild is more important than a godly grandchild. And only a couple more verses, verses we're going to look at next week, Jesus is going to say this. He's going to say, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? In our culture, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure to raise successful children. And that's successful in the world's eyes. That's not necessarily successful in biblical eyes. we were supposed to raise successful children that go to a good college. They get a great education. They get a, a great six-figure-plus job. And they secure a great financial future. But unfortunately, many parents make the highest priority to raise a successful, a worldly successful child, but not to raise a godly child. My oldest daughter, who was married 13 years ago, at her wedding reception, she was speaking, and she said something that touches me to this day. Now, my youngest daughter's going to be getting married next January. I can't think they give you the date, because she may hear it on the podcast and get mad at me. But anyway, <laughs> when Julia got married, she stood up, and she said, "Here's what I remember most: my daddy telling me that he's more concerned about my character than my comfort." Now she's gone on. She's got a four-year bachelor. She's got a master's degree. She's got a great job with a company. If I named, you know, the name of the company. If I was, is I name? She just started that a couple months ago. She'd worked for another company for the last 11 years in business development stuff. But that really touches me that she understands that I'm more concerned about her character about her being a godly woman than about pursuing this, this great job. And, and I don't know how she does it as both a mom and a businesswoman, she, but she does. And I'm, and I'm proud of her. I'm proud of her. But the thing that I'm most concerned about would be her character, about being a godly woman than to be a successful businesswoman. Now, I realize that that's not politically correct to say that in today's world, but I'm sorry, that's who I, that's who I am. But I promise you, if you raise a financially successful son or daughter and his character stinks, you're going to be heartbroken. You're going to be heartbroken. Unless that's what you've been pursuing all your life too. And, and you may have been. And I'm glad you're here if that's how you've been. But God wants, God's, you know where I got that? Because I heard a pastor once say, God's more concerned about our character than our comfort. That wasn't original to me. I was just passing down her something that I heard, I think, from Rick Warren first. I wanted my kids to be that way. At the end of the day, you're not going to care how much money your children made if their character, if their walk with Christ is destroyed. On the other hand, if you raise a son or daughter that loves Jesus, that's a man or woman of character, even if they're average in the world's eyes, I promise you, you're going to be thrilled if your priorities are in the right place. Proverbs 23 says, The father of a righteous man has great joy. He who has a wise son delights in him. And you could put daughter in there just as well. You could say a, a, a mother who has a wise son or daughter. Peter said, Jesus, you're the Christ. But let me tell you how to run things better. We wouldn't do that, would we? Don't be a Peter. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day!